Hey guys, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling Biru. So in 2004, around the time when George W. Bush was nearing re-election, Philip Roth published The Plot Against America. It's an alternative history, a what-if scenario that in so many chilling ways reflects the moment we are in right now, in 2020. The Plot Against America imagines this. Franklin D. Roosevelt loses the 1940 presidential election to the Republican candidate. It's the aviation hero, the America First populist and Nazi sympathizer Charles Lindbergh. This resulting in anti-Semitic sentiments and violence against Jews. We see all this through the eyes of a Jewish family in Newark, New Jersey, much based on Roth's own family. Now, writer-producers David Simon and Ed Burns have taken on the book and made a six-hour miniseries starring Zoe Kazan, John Turturro, and Winona Ryder. My intention in running for the presidency is preventing America from taking part in another world war. Your choice is not between Charles A. Lindbergh and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It is between Lindbergh and war. What if Lindbergh does win? Everyone sees what he is. To most people in this country, there's never been a bigger hero in their lifetime. Yes? He's calling us war agitators. Listen to that crowd. There's a lot of hate out there, and he knows how to tap into it. Admittedly, Mr. Lindbergh made the statements grounded in anti-Semitic cliché, but it did so out of ignorance. This is how it starts. Since everywhere he goes, Hitler beats down and shoots the Jews. There may be a time when he comes here, to America, to beat down and shoot us. What will our president do then? We only think we're Americans. Maybe it's too early to leave, but it's not too early to have a backup plan. My guest this week is Ed Burns, the former Baltimore detective for the Homicide and Narcotics Division and a former public school teacher. Ed Burns met David Simon when he was a detective, and Simon was a young police reporter at the Baltimore Sun. Together, they have written and produced some of the greatest television, from The Corner to The Wire to Generation Kill. I got to talk to Mr. Burns ahead of the premiere of The Plot Against America on March 16th. We talked about the series, why the show is so urgent right now, Trump's presidency, the future of democracy, and so much more. Mr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. I'm just um, a slow thinker, so there might be some pauses while I reflect, but we'll see. I, I like that. I like, a, I like reflection. Now, I understand that David Simon and you were approached to a, adapt the Roth novel much earlier than this, but said no at the time. But then when, when Trump came to office, things changed for you. Can you explain why? Well, uh, well, first of all, I think we have to give Donald Trump credit for <laughs> the birth of um, of the, the miniseries um, because he represented such a threat and represents such a threat to our, our country that it was conceivable now um, that a Hitler-type revolt 
or counter-revolution from the top down could take place. Um, we were stunned at the quickness of which Trump dismantled the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his neoliberalist thinking was that the government was an impeded business and that the only thing the government should be really involved in is either supporting business, supporting the military, and supporting the police. Everything else should be deregulated and, and the marketplace and the, and the oligarchy will, will ensure everybody's um, well-being. Right. And in the book, there, there's a, a, a pace to that that you can see with Lindbergh. It, it reflects very much the 1933 when, when Hitler came in in January, how quickly uh, he had his thumb on everybody in Germany within a matter of months. The Nazi Party controlled Germany. We we can we see the rise in the Nazi Party of all these sycophants and, and money grubbers and, and people racist and stuff like that. And and we begin to see in the book uh, Plot Against America, Ross saw these same kind of people being like a magnet pulled to um, Lindbergh and and the whole the whole idea of a false populism. So it was it was. Um, in this sense that we thought, well, this is, this is a great time to do this book. I mean, this is what this book was written for. Mm-hmm. Um, Roth was very farsighted. Democracy, we, we believe, liberals believe, and I mean liberals in the, in the traditional sense of the word, not, not as a party, but they, liberals believe that, that a constitution, good, good debating back and forth across, across the, the hall, um, we can always come to a solution. And um, invariably, that fails. Right. Uh, it's been failing and been failing for a long time. So, this is the danger of a Lindbergh character, and in reality, a danger of Trump, and even worse than that, the person who could replace Trump, who could come after Trump. We, we, we've um, done everything we can to uh, destroy the, the communal aspect of democracy. Right. It's right. now just a propaganda thing. Lindbergh was a hero, an aviation hero to the people, and and Philip Roth himself has said, and, and you know, Trump is definitely no no hero. But I keep hearing also as well here in Europe that there are the type of of, of followers um, to the sort of right wing uh, nationalist and populists where they talk that. They think the talk is heroic, that they tell it like it is, and they're spewing hate, and they're saying the true things about that, and that that's sort of a weird hero image. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Yes, it's, it's, it's the outsider coming in and, and condemning the elites, the elites who have been running this um, globalization capitalist um, mantra of, you know, everything is going to be fine, the market's going to take place, it's going to lift all, all boats. This, this idea of somebody coming along and saying, that's all bullshit, this is, you know, we have to change this and, and beat that populist drum. And don't forget, he, he wasn't a hero, Trump, but he was, he was a celebrity. Exactly. And right. in the United States, in the United States, a celebrity um, is godlike. He, he, is, he is an incredible um, con man. And um, quite quite a skillful demagogue, which of course Hitler was in a different sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
This adaptation must have been an interesting challenge because it's it's an alternative history, but it's also based on real people, um, Lindbergh and, and Roth and his family um, himself. And I once saw you give a lecture about writing. Your number one advice was know your subject. First of all, I'd like to talk about Elizabeth Levin, played by Zoe Kazan. Tell me about her. Well, I, I think that she's a product of, of immigration, second generation, and someone who is very integrated into her community, because it's in the community that um, she knows she can survive. She's a great mother, and is the, in our story, is, is, the, is the very center of the story. Even though it seems to be chaotic around her, she's the grounding force. Is this a, someone you could relate to yourself? I had a grandmother who, who was first generation from Ireland, um, actually a great, a great aunt. And mm-hmm. um, she was the one that, that held our family together uh, on my mother's side. Um, she, she was the eye of the storm. And believe me, there was a lot of storms floating around her, but it was, it was her tenacity and her um, religious grounding that, that um, uh, kept the family somewhat together. So yeah, I, I don't know the particulars of the, the character's individual religious um, connections, but I know the, the, the strong feminine drive to, to protect and defend the family. And we all know, of course, you were a detective and, and you were also a teacher. and. You talked about something um, that you learned as a teacher that, that, that broke my heart, and that is that, that um, if we lose the kids in elementary school to crime or to hate, the deed is kind of done. Um, is this true also in terms of hatred and how kids feel towards each other? Um, I don't know if it's true about how kids feel about each other. I think that... Um, in fact, I would go so far as today is to say, if we don't have a program from zero to three, oh. um, then we will lose many, many kids, many, many, uh, tons of poor kids who, who do not know how, who do not have the basic skills um, to, to um, com- not compete, but to, to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, and our educational system is designed to stop most kids from not doing well. Um, we have an elite group. We have fabulous publics. Um, some suburban public schools are fabulous. We have fabulous private schools. But if you go into rural communities, if you go into the inner cities in our country and, and look at the schools in the, there, it, it is... It's heart-wrenching. Mm. Um, I taught I taught seventh and eighth graders, um, most of whom were had been kept back at least one or two years. Some of whom were reading on the in the first grade level, and and to see somebody who's physically the size that I am, staring at a, at a page with two words on it, with a big picture explaining what the words are and not understanding it, um, that's a crime. And also the violence that you describe that these kids have seen um, in their very young lives. I saw 
and I know that there are more kids um, in this country, America, that are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder than there are troops. And this, this is because of the war on drugs and the war on poverty. Then there are troops um, um, who fought in Afghanistan and in Iraq. The, the toll of, of what goes on um, is astonishing. And, and I, I've always thought of it as, as, as a sort of a Holocaust in slow motion. Right. Because when I came on the police department in the early 70s, um, there was neighborhoods in the, in the precinct where I was working, which were working class. And then over the years, that working class was just ground down and it just became a vast ghetto with one business um, going on, and that was the drug business. And because the drug business is illegal, um, it, it automatically means there's violence. And the violence became um, worse and worse as, as the quality of, of the handguns became better and better. And so we went from a Saturday night special to a Tech 9, and the murder rates just uh, took off with the, with the, <laughs> the help of cocaine. and um, in Baltimore today, it's, it's, it's probably the worst in, in, in the country as far as the number of murders in population. Wow. Um, I have to ask you, um, since we're right in the middle of this all over the world, we have the, the coronavirus uh, as we speak. And what do you predict sort of in terms of, you know, profiling and racism and things that will come out of something like this where the world is affected? Well, I mean, we're already seeing that the, and, and just, I mean, this is spotty recording, but we're seeing that, that the Asians are taking the brunt of being the, uh, the uh, carriers. Um, but I don't know if, it, if the virus itself is going to be so much um, a matter of racism. Uh, I think it's going to uh, almost be tribal, um, even maybe even family. I mean, people will, community will break down. If, if, if the virus becomes really, really bad, the community will break down. It'll, it'll remind you of the walking dead, you know, mm-hmm. a, few, a few trying to survive um, type thing. And, and if, I don't know what happened to this country. I mean, you know, you, you read the stories of the Westwood expansion and the, the um, characters of uh, Gary Cooper and High Moon standing up against the bad guys and stuff like that. But this is a nation that's very fearful mm-hmm. uh, and very easily manipulated, as, as Trump so well plays on. So the, these fears that, that can be stoked um, can, be, can be directed in any direction that the demagogue wants. Because we've lost reflective thinking. We've lost you know, being aware of a world outside the bubble we live in, which is Fox News for many people, Rush Limbaugh on the radio, the fundamentalist um, churches mm-hmm. that are, are astonishing in, 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 their, in their acceptance of a, a, of a reinterpretation of what, what love is and what the Bible is about. Um, um, probably the biggest myth we've created in the last, since Reagan, was um, the idea that everyone, everyone, it's a level playing field, and everyone has a chance. And if someone fails, they fail because they chose to fail. And that myth, unlike 
the original myths, which were transcendent, the Greek myths, the other myths, they were transcendent. They took us outside. The myths that we create shut us down. If I see a, a guy on the street that has a sign, you know, we'll work for food, has a little paper cup, I can now look at that guy and say, he chose to be there. Mm-hmm. That's his choice. I don't have to help him. And that individualization. Yeah, the loss of empathy, right? right? Democracy should not be a um, process of government. Democracy should be an ethical way of being, a communal sense. That's what it should be. That's what um, Dewey talked about, John Dewey talked about um, back in the 20s. Um, by making it by making it this political thing, it, it, it tarnishes democracy because our Democratic Party is as much tied, well, most of it is as much tied to Wall Street and the Wall Street money as the Republican Party is. So we only have a sliver of a Bernie Sanders progressive group that is anyway talking about um, community. Mm-hmm. Everything else is, is, is this mindset. And you know, we came out of World War II um, with FDR's, Franklin Roosevelt's um, Four Freedoms. Um, we came out with his idea of the Second Bill of Rights, which would be free education, uh, health care for all, ideas like that. And very quickly, that all died out, and the oligarchy got back in control, and there's been um, <laughs> the inequality shows that they've been quite successful. Do you think that we, that, you know, people feel that we need change, or will it be a re-election of Trump? Having lost the language of the left, um, you know, we're stuck with capitalism, and it's it's a it's a carnivore type capitalism that's just eating people up, and um, the relief will become if the corporations allow a little bit of relief. But I don't know. Right? It's going to have to be that the people come into the street. That that's it's got to get that bad, and that's difficult because the culture has created this idea, particularly in the working class, that, I, that the people I know, that this is just the way the world is. This is just how it is. And once you have that idea, then... That there's no way to change. Right. There's, it, this just happens to be the way it is, not just through a you know, short straw. It's got to get past that. And only the young can do that because the... the once you go past a certain age, you're sort of locked into your thinking. But the young have got to see and got to do something. I, I believe that the young will. Mm. I believe that eventually the young will. I mean, it's, I saw the young in the 1960s in the war against Vietnam, in the war um, for civil rights, in the war for, for the feminist movement. I saw their energy. I saw their power. I did see to how easily that, that was swayed. And, and into a more benign way, and then the corporations took it over. But I, I think that because if you look over your shoulder and you see climate change, then that willingness to um, sell out um, won't be there. Yeah. Well, let's not lose them. Well, won't lose them on the way, the young people. Right. Yeah. Just getting finally getting back to the show. Um, what do you and and, and David and, and everyone who's behind this? Uh, what do you hope that that the viewer that one will sort of feel after watching the six episodes? What do you want us to take with us? I, I want them to take with 
us, I myself, I don't know about anybody else, um, how fragile the um, governmental system we have in this country, how very fragile it is, and how it has to be um, tended like a good garden. And that means that people have to become political. Hannah Arendt basically said that we are political creatures and that everything else is subservient to, to our communal politics. We are not, we, we become, um, as Marcuse said, a one-dimensional man. We're the economic people and we're slaves to that. But if we don't, if we don't take care of our democracy, it's not going to be there to take care of us. And that should be obvious um, in this show, how quickly Lindbergh and, and company started to make changes, how it gave um, an opening for the, the ugliness of, of, of um, anti-Semitism to, to just well up, and how Trump in the real world has given rise to racism, anti-Semitism, um, immigrants, you name it. He, he's got a whole host of, of uh, demons that he's chasing. Um, but it, it's, it's how fragile we are, how fragile democracy is. That would, that would be my hope. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I know no one, very few people know how quickly Hitler took over Germany. And no, no, and very few people know how liberal the Weimar Republic's constitution was. Uh, women's rights, all sorts of things that didn't come until much later in the rest of Europe was in Germany back in uh, 20, uh, 1910. So, yeah, this is this uh, like a red flag. Mm-hmm. Pay attention, it should be. I am going to just read a quote here. Um, it is, I'm not a fatalist. I'm very optimistic. In America, before we notice things, things have to become bad. This is something you said in t- 2008. And I was wondering if you've changed in the last decade, um, or are you still an optimist? I'm still an optimist. Um, I have faith in the people. I believe that things haven't got bad enough for us to make the changes we need to make. Bernie Sanders um, has reintroduced the language of the working class, the socialist language of the working class, which has been lost to us for decades, since the 1930s. Hopefully, that that seed that he planted will will germinate and the young will begin to embrace it. But... (laughs) As for right now, things look very, very dark. And of course, with climate change being what it is, I hope we can respond before it becomes um, too late to respond. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Burns, for your time and for this interesting conversation and again for this great series. Um, it was, I think it'll mean a lot to a lot of people. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I, I like to watch a lot of Swedish um, TV and... <laughs> Uh, your detective stuff is good. Yeah. (laughs) 
Thank you so much to Ed Burns. The Plot Against America premieres on HBO on March 16th. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It really helps others to find us. And remember, you can find many great interviews like this one, as well as film and entertainment coverage on awardswatch.com. This episode was edited by Julia Scott, and I'm Christina Jarling-Biro. Stay safe and see you next time. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.